You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. Henry Bowen's parents react exactly as Kaiser knew they would. They scream, cry, blame the police, blame each other, and then eventually fall silent as they try to individually process the new reality they now face. Amelia Bowen's eyes are slightly glazed. She sits silently on a small blue sofa in the police station's conference room, subdued on the outside, raging fire on the inside. Tyson Bowen paces the room like a caged lion, eyes bright and intense, hands curled into claws, ready to destroy someone. Based on Henry's age, Kaiser expected to meet younger parents, but the Bowens are older, mid-forties. We adopted him. Amelia Bowen's voice is soft and distant. Tyson and I met in college, but we were so busy. We thought we'd wait to have kids until we were at least 30 and just enjoy our time together. Tyson Bowen stops pacing. Amelia, don't... Kaiser raises a hand. It's better to let her speak. She'll be more responsive and apt to remember something if she's allowed to think things through in her own way. The first question he'll ask, of course, is about Henry's biological mother, now that he knows Amelia didn't give birth to him. He has the phone in his hand, the sensor bar photo of the female victim just a tap away. But not yet. All our friends seemed to be waiting to have kids, too, Amelia continues. And it was nice to go out for dinner and drinks, to be 26 and then 28 and then 29 and not have to worry about sleepless nights and babysitters and the expense of having a child. Then we turned 30 and it still wasn't the right time because we decided we wanted to be further along in our careers before slowing down to become parents. We worked hard, both got promoted, and then we realized we needed the right house in the right neighborhood in a good school district. And then suddenly we were 35 and we started trying to get pregnant only to find out we'd waited too long and now we couldn't. Four rounds of IVF, two miscarriages. We put ourselves on the adoption list, waited two years to get picked. And when we got word that Henry's biological mother selected us, it was the greatest day of our lives. The disconnect in her voice fades. She pauses. The loose bun at the top of her head is askew, and she reaches up and plays with an errant lock of brown hair dangling down one side. We were in the delivery room. The first time I held him, a minute after he was born, he instantly felt like mine. It didn't matter that he had just come out of another woman's body. He was mine, and I felt it, and I know Henry felt it because he looked up at me and we both just knew. And I thought, why the hell did we wait so long? Why did we think everything had to be perfect? Because children are perfect and everything falls into place when you hold your child in your arms. All the things you think you're going to worry about don't matter. She meets her husband's gaze. Tyson Bowen is standing in the corner watching her with tears in his eyes. And now he's gone. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. She leans forward, her chest racked with sobs. Her husband sits down beside her and holds her tightly. I'll give you a few minutes, Kaiser says, but neither of them acknowledge him. Right now, it's just them, wrapped around each other, their grief wrapped around them.
He slips out of the room, indicating to the grief counselor that she can go on in. The Bowen's child is dead, and while there is a sense of urgency to find out what happened to him, he can allow them ten minutes to cry. He heads to his desk down the hall and logs into his computer. Report came back on the lipstick used to write on the kid's chest, Kim says. She's seated at her desk directly across from him. I saw you were busy with the parents and didn't want to interrupt you. I see that, he says, clicking on the report. Shit, that was fast. It's because I had them narrow it down, Kim says, and he looks up. I asked them to check if it was a brand made by Ship Pharmaceuticals. Why would, he begins, and then stops as he makes the connection. Oh, right. Ship Pharmaceuticals, Georgina's old company. And that right there is why he appreciates Kim. For every obvious detail she misses, there's one she finds that nobody else would possibly have thought of. My hunch was right. It is a ship-made product. There's a note of triumph in his partner's voice. They're about to launch a new line of cosmetics, and this particular lipstick only comes in ten shades. The heart on the kid's chest was drawn in one of them. About to launch? They're not widely available yet. You can only buy the lipstick at Nordstrom and only at the flagship store here in Seattle. It's only been on sale for one week. One week? That's it? She smiles, pleased that he's pleased. That's it. Call the store and- Done. They'll send over the security footage shortly. He sits back in his chair and gives her a smile. Great work. It all ties back to Georgina Shaw, Kai. Kim is bouncing in her chair, her ponytail bobbing behind her. Clearly, someone's trying to get her attention. I called down to Hazelwood, requested copies of her visitor's log, phone calls, mail. Maybe she's been in contact with Calvin James. Even if she has, the reports won't show that, as Kaiser well knows. But he can't tell Kim he's been paying a prison guard for information on Georgina, so he simply says, good thinking. You could always talk to her, too. She gets out in a couple of days. Kaiser turns away. He doesn't want his partner to see his face. His feelings for Georgina are complicated, and they always have been. I know you two were close once, but that was a long time ago, Kim says. Don't let your bias get in the way of doing everything you can to solve these murders. The female victim was killed in the exact same way as Angela Wong. She was buried in the same woods right by Georgina's house. The lipstick is from a company she worked for. You know how many brands of lipstick there are in the United States, Kai? I looked it up. Thousands. Big names, small names, brands that are now discontinued but that you can still find on eBay. This wasn't some old lipstick the killer had lying around. It was chosen deliberately. Kim's mind is in full analytic mode. He can tell by the way she's speaking but not looking at him, her speech rapid but extra clear. It has to be Calvin James. He's still out there. Maybe he's back. And maybe your old friend Georgina knows all about it. You didn't see her at the trial five years ago, Kim, he says. She wouldn't even look at him. She never made eye contact with him while she was testifying, not until the very end, and that's only because he spoke to her. She was terrified? No, it wasn't fear. Something else. Resentment, maybe. Like he was a reminder of the person she used to be and she hated him for it. Calvin James might have been charged with the murders of four women, 
but it was Georgina Shaw's arrest that kicked the case into the media spotlight. A big pharma executive involved in the cold case murder of her teenage best friend? It was more entertaining than a Lifetime movie, more titillating than an episode of 2020. Nothing is more satisfying to humans than watching another person fail, especially when it's someone who has everything you don't. Beauty, brains, an education, a high-paying job, a rich fiancé. There are three versions of Georgina Shaw that Kaiser knows. The first is the girl he knew in high school, the sweet cheerleader who had friends in every social circle and who got straight A's. The second was the girl she'd become after she'd met Calvin, distracted, consumed, unavailable, selfish. The third was the woman he'd arrested in the ship boardroom 14 years later, successful, mature, exhausted, and remorseful. Which version is she now? Kim is on the phone talking to someone who can only be her husband, judging by the gentle tone of her voice. Kaiser makes his way back to the Bowens, his mind sifting through all the questions he still needs answers to. Is it possible that Georgina is still in love with Calvin, and that her avoidance of him during the trial five years ago was all just an act? He slipped her something that day in the courtroom, something that still eats at Kaiser whenever he thinks of it. She denied it was anything important, but he doesn't believe her. Of course he doesn't. Remorseful or not, nobody's a better liar than Georgina Shaw. He opens the door to the conference room. The Bowens are huddled together on the couch. The grief counselor is speaking softly. Three heads look up at Kaiser when he enters. I'm so sorry, he says again. There's no point in asking them how they're doing. We want to find out who did this, Tyson Bowen says. He's a bit calmer than he was earlier, but not much. His voice is shaking. Beside him, his wife nods. Absolutely. Kaiser pulls out his phone and taps it to pull up the picture of the dead woman with the sensor bar. I need you to look at this picture and tell me if you recognize the woman. Amelia Bowen leans forward, takes a good look at his phone, and gasps. That's Claire Tolliver, she says. Oh my God. She looks to her husband for confirmation, and though it takes him a few seconds longer, he confirms her statement with a brisk nod. Who's Claire Tolliver? Kaiser asks them. Henry's birth mother, Amelia Bowen says. Is she dead? What's wrong with her eyes? Kaiser answers the first question, but not the second. They don't need to know. The report Kim requested from the warden at Hazelwood is in Kaiser's email the following morning. Encompassing all five years of Georgina's prison stay, it's too large to download to his phone, so he sits at Kim's desk with his coffee and logs into her computer. His partner won't be in for another hour. She left his apartment early this morning to shower and change, and whenever she's not in, he prefers to sit at her desk. She's neater. The top of Kim's desk is always clear, the pens arranged like a bouquet in their ceramic holder. In contrast, Kaiser's desk looks like a junkie tossed it searching for drugs. He scrolls through the report quickly. There's less detail in it than the reports he receives from the corrections officer he pays every month, and of course there are no personal notes. But it is interesting to see the past five years of Georgina Shaw's life summed up in one long spreadsheet. It gives Kaiser a different perspective on the information he's had all along. 
Her mail, for instance. Like any inmate of notoriety, Georgina gets fan mail, and in the span of five years, she's received over a thousand letters. But ten of those letters were sent from the same address. Somehow this didn't register when Kaiser received his monthly reports from his inside source, and he can only assume he missed it because those reports only listed sender names, which are all different. Whoever wrote to Georgina from an address in Spokane, Washington, used a different moniker each time. Tony Stark, Clark Kent, Bruce Banner, Charles Xavier, and so on. The real-life identities of fictional superheroes. Fuck, Kaiser mutters. It's a hell of an oversight, and he has nobody to blame but himself. He runs the Spokane address through the Seattle PD database and comes up with a hit for Ursula Archer. In her mid-60s, she's a retired librarian whose husband passed away the year before. Kaiser picks up the phone and dials the number. Thirty seconds later, he's speaking to the woman. It takes another 15 seconds to explain who he is and why he's calling, but she's not suspicious. If anything, the woman sounds happy to have someone to talk to. You must be calling about Dominic, Ursula Archer says. Her voice is both soft and sharp, every syllable pronounced crisply, although her tone isn't harsh. She reminds Kaiser of a teacher he had in high school. He stayed with us a few years ago. We were his foster parents for three years. He wrote letters to a woman, you said? Kaiser stifles his disappointment. Clearly, the letters aren't from Calvin James. Yes, to an inmate at Hazelwood Correctional Institute named Georgina Shaw. The woman sighs, and he can almost picture her shaking her head on the other line. Her driver's license photo, which he's pulled up on his computer screen, depicts a woman with dark blonde hair in the early stages of gray, cut in a short bob that's slightly longer at the front. The name doesn't ring a bell, she says. But then Dominic wrote to quite a few people in prison. It started as a school project. He was doing some kind of research on life in prison after Scared Straight came to his school to do a talk. You've heard of that program? Kaiser was only vaguely familiar with it, but knew the gist. It involved former inmates convincing kids to stay in school and away from drugs and gangs. He glances toward the wall clock at the precinct, wondering how he can get her off the phone. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm sorry to have bothered. Anyway, Dominic decided to do his social studies project on life behind bars, and he came across a website where you can write to inmates. Next thing we know, we've got mail coming from prisons all over the country. Graham, my late husband, was pretty upset. After all, these were convicted criminals who were sending letters to our home address. He didn't want Dominic writing to them anymore, but I convinced him to let it go, that it didn't seem to be doing any harm. We ended up getting him a post office box so he could have mail sent there instead. We told him to never give out personal information and to never send anyone money. Despite none of this being useful to his investigation, Kaiser finds himself curious. What was he writing to them about? Initially, he was fascinated with how they ended up there, but after a while, he was only writing to the female inmates. Some of them sent love letters. I think he liked the attention. Kaiser stifles a chuckle. Well, I appreciate your time. I think about him often, you know. He had a rough start, was in foster care since he was very young. Ursula sighs into his ear. But he has exceptional survival skills, that I believe.
He did use superhero names on all his correspondence, Kaiser says. That's something he'd do, Ursula says with a laugh. He always wished he was someone else. It takes Kaiser another minute before he can wrangle himself off the phone politely, but he's not too annoyed. The woman sounded lonely. Seriously? A voice behind Kaiser says, and he turns to find Kim standing there, coffee in hand. You realize you have your own desk three feet away, right? I hate it when you sit at my desk. You make everything messy. She waves her free hand in a gesture of distaste. I like your desk, he says, but he picks himself up out of the chair and moves over. It's so clean. Even the air around it smells fresher. Thought you weren't going to be in for another half hour. I decided to come in early after all, she says, and very subtly, her body language changes in a way that would only be noticeable to someone who knows her intimately. And Kaiser knows her intimately. Her voice drops. Dave was waiting for me when I got home. He didn't ask me questions, she adds quickly, seeing the look on Kaiser's face. But he did say he thinks we need to get away for the weekend and spend some time together. So we're going to Scottsdale on Friday back to the resort where we got married. He already booked it. She holds Kaiser's gaze for a full 10 seconds before looking away. Ah, he keeps his tone light. Sounds nice. I'm sure you'll have a great time. It's all he can say. The heaviness in his heart surprises him, even though he knows the affair should have ended ages ago. Fuck that. It should never have started in the first place. He busies himself with tidying up his desk so they don't have to talk. Their relationship plays out in his mind in a series of snapshots. Kim propped up in bed beside him as he catches up on some computer work, her bare breasts glowing from the light of the laptop screen, nipples like fresh mosquito bites. Kim snaking her hand into his boxer briefs as she makes a phone call to her husband to tell him that she'll be working all night. Kim in the shower only that morning, the water sliding down her back as she bends forward so he can take her from behind. He swallows the memories down with a long sip of hot coffee, burning his throat in the process. His desk phone rings and he's grateful for the distraction. It's Julia Chan returning his call. She's the roommate of Henry Bowen's biological mother and he tried calling her last night after Claire's parents met him at the morgue to confirm their daughter's identity. It had been a long night, especially since Kim had come over afterward. I just got your message. I'm heading into work, detective, the young woman says, sounding distracted and put out. I have an early meeting and I'm already late. What's this about? I have some questions about Claire Tolliver, he says. Can I stop by your office and speak to you today? Sure, do me a favor and flash your badge. It's the only way they'll let me out of the meeting early. He leaves the precinct without saying goodbye to Kim. But at the elevator, he takes one last look at the back of his partner's head, blonde hair pulled back neatly into her signature ponytail. She seems to feel his eyes on her and looks up. He avoids eye contact and steps into the elevator. It's over. Thank fucking God. Strathroy, Oakwood, and Strauss looks like every other big law firm Kaiser's ever been in, and at 8 a.m. it's already bustling. 
A giant engraved logo behind the reception desk greets him, where two young women, probably fresh out of college, are wearing headsets and answering the phones with bored efficiency. The badge gets their attention, and he's assured that the person he's asking for will be located as soon as possible. In the meantime, would he like a cup of coffee while he waits? Yes. Yes, he would. The coffee is hot and frothy and covered with cinnamon sprinkles. It's also damned good, and he sips it slowly. Claire Tolliver's parents took the news of their daughter's death terribly the night before, as there's no other way to take it. Her father demanded questions Kaiser had no answers for. Her mother's sobs could be heard from one end of the long morgue hallway to the other. And now here he is at the law firm, waiting to speak to Claire's roommate in order to learn more about the young woman's life. He uses the downtime to investigate his dead victim's social media accounts. There's only one that he can find, a LinkedIn profile, and this surprises him, considering Claire came of age at the height of social media. She has no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter. Her LinkedIn profile tells him she graduated from Puget Sound State University with a bachelor's degree in political science and a French minor. She was in her second year of law school at the same university and doing a three-month internship at Strathroy Oakwood and Strauss because they have a special focus on women's rights, which are human rights. She was clearly a fan of Hillary Clinton. The professional photo Claire uploaded to her LinkedIn account looks nothing like the corpse on the table at the morgue. And yet there's no mistaking it's her. Same long, dark hair, same face shape, the only detail the photo adds are her eyes. Blue. A beautiful young woman who had a bright future ahead of her. Detective, a voice says, and Kaiser looks up to see an attractive woman in her early 20s standing there. I'm Julia Chan. Sorry to keep you waiting. I was in a meeting and my phone was on silent. Someone had to track me down. Not a problem, Kaiser says, shaking the outstretched hand. The hand is small, but the grip is firm. We can talk in one of the conference rooms, she says. Interns are only assigned cubicles and we wouldn't get any privacy there. He follows her down the hall and around the corner. Despite the early hour, everyone is dressed in business attire and moving with an air of harried importance. They look at Kaiser curiously as they pass, but Julia Chan doesn't break stride, her taupe-colored pumps tapping soundlessly on the carpet in machine-like precision. She's dressed in a pleated black knee-length skirt and crisp white blouse, her hair pulled back into a bun at the nape of her neck. They enter the first conference room and she closes the door. Only when they're alone does he see the stress on her pretty face. I've been covering for her here since last Thursday, Julia says, sitting down at the table and gesturing for him to do the same. This isn't the first time she's done this. I swear to God, if she's not dead, I'm going to kill her. I knew it was a bad idea for us to take the same internship. Done what? Kaiser asks. Disappeared. It happened once before. She met a guy, spent the entire weekend at his house, forgot to tell people. Smartest but flakiest girl you'll ever meet. She came back three days later, but I was furious. Now her phone is going straight to voicemail, which means the battery is dead or she's turned it off. Julia obviously hasn't spoken to Claire's parents yet. She puts her hand to her mouth and chews on a fingernail. Kaiser checks out her other hand, which rests on the table. The nails are ragged, worn down to little stumps. She notices him noticing and puts her hands in her lap. 
Strathroy, Oakwood, and Strauss has a 100% attendance policy here for interns, Julia says. You have to be gravely ill to call in sick, and you'd better have a doctor's note to back it up. When she didn't show up for work last Thursday, I told our boss that a member of her family died and that she asked me to relay the news. They weren't happy about it, but I couldn't let her get fired. I hope they don't ask her for a death certificate when she gets back. So, is she dead? The next word, he says, will change this young woman's life forever. And as gently as possible, he says, yes. Julia blinks. She searches Kaiser's face for any sign that he's joking, and when none appears, she freezes. A full 30 seconds pass before she slumps into her chair. Fuck. Her eyes well up with tears, but she blinks them away. The fingers are back in her mouth. Fuck, she says again. How? She was killed. We're still figuring the rest out. She was murdered? Her gaze flickers to his badge. This is a homicide? Yes. How? Julia asks again, more forcefully this time, and a tear slips down her cheek. She swipes at it almost angrily as if it's a nuisance, as if there's no place in this conversation for crying. It's not important for you to know. You can either tell me or I'll be Googling the shit out of it later. Julia's dark eyes are full of sorrow but behind it, there's determination. She's a strong young woman, and she wants answers. And I'm sure it will be less traumatic hearing about it from you. Please tell me. She's my friend. I need to know. So Kaiser lays out what he knows. As gently as possible, he tells the young woman how her friend was strangled, dismembered, and then buried in the woods. He doesn't tell her about Henry. He doesn't know if she's aware that Claire gave up a baby for adoption, and it's not his place to reveal it. Julia Chan listens without interrupting. When he finishes, she stands up, smooths her skirt, and says, Excuse me a moment, and leaves him alone in the conference room. He half expected it. Death notifications are always hard, and though he's tried not to think about Kim this morning, he finds himself wishing she were here. She's better at this kind of thing than he is. He uses the time to check his messages, and he's just putting his phone back in his pocket when Julia comes back into the conference room. She was gone a full ten minutes. She sits beside him once again, rolling her chair a bit farther away this time, but she's composed, ready to talk. The shakiness is gone. The only noticeable difference is her eyes. They're red and puffy from the tears she's cried. When she speaks, her voice is hoarse and there's a slight disconnect to it. Kaiser recognizes what she's doing because it's something he does himself every day. Julia Chan is compartmentalizing. She'll make a hell of a lawyer someday. I hope the next thing you tell me is that you're going to find the son of a bitch who did it, she says. And I hope you rip him to pieces the way he did her. I'm going to find the son of a bitch who did it, Kaiser says. And he means it. That much he feels comfortable promising. Claire's parents said you were her roommate. Since freshman year of undergrad. We were more than roommates. We were really good friends. We're both only children, so we were probably the closest thing to having a sister. Julia's face crumples, but she fights it. I'm trying to trace her whereabouts in the days before she was killed, Kaiser says. Her parents hadn't seen her for a couple of weeks. 
Well, she's busy. Was busy, Julia corrected, and then her face falls again. She works, worked shit, part-time at a coffee shop in the U District, the Green Bean. Last I saw her, which I think was Wednesday of last week, that's where she was. I'm taking a night course on top of this internship and usually pop in to study if she's working because she gives me free lattes. Anyway, she didn't come back to the apartment that night. And that's typical? Yeah. Yes. But usually she'll text and she didn't, so I figured she was hooking up with the guy I saw her talking to. Kaiser straightens up. Which guy? Some guy. I didn't get a good look. He was sitting in the corner. Age, height, hair color? White guy for sure, baseball cap pulled low, jeans and a t-shirt, not overly built but not skinny, clean shaven I think. He had long legs and so my impression is that he was tall. Her head snaps up. Oh shit, is he, you think he killed her? I don't know, Kaiser says, and it's the most honest answer he can give. I'm looking at everything. What else can you tell me? That's all. Julia says, and her face crumples all the way this time, a lone tear seeping out of the corner of her eye. I don't know for a fact that she got together with him, but it's something she's done. She's a beautiful girl. Guys are constantly hitting on her. She has no interest in a relationship, so she, you know, keeps it casual. She stops, closes her eyes, takes a breath. Was, she says when she opens them again. She was a beautiful girl. I've seen her picture on LinkedIn. Julia manages a snort. That's her professional pick. She's not buttoned up like that when she's not in the office. She reaches into the pocket of her skirt and pulls out her phone, scrolls through it, then hands it to him. The picture on it was of the two of them, dressed up for a night out at the club. Julia Chan was a pretty young woman, but Claire Tolliver was, to put it mildly, stunning. Dressed in a low-cut, slinky black mini-dress and high heels, she could have passed for a model or an actress easily. Long, almost black hair, small waist, generous breasts and hips, legs for days. The word that came to mind as Kaiser examined the photo was lush. That was in Vegas last spring after we graduated. A small smile crossed Julia's face. That was a fun weekend. We're doing a trip to Miami this May once we, shit. Kaiser allows her to cry, sitting patiently until she's able to get herself under control once again. The conference room door opens and a middle-aged woman looks in, concern etched all over her face at the sight of the younger woman in tears. Everything okay here? Julia, you all right? I'm fine, Heather, thank you. Julia wipes her face quickly with her hands. We're finishing up, I'll be right out. The woman closes the door, but not before giving Kaiser a dirty look, as if to say, damn you for making her cry. Have you told her parents? Julia asks. Spoke to them yesterday, Kaiser says, fumbling in his pocket for a tissue. He finds one, wrinkled but clean, and offers it to her. That's how I found you. I'll have to call them, she blows her nose. And the Bowens, too. Oh, God, how do I tell them? Her voice trails off. Kaiser is surprised. The Bowens? You know about Henry? She gives him a look like he's said the stupidest thing ever. 
that she had a son she gave up for adoption? Of course. Yeah. Yes. We were living together, detective. I sat with her watching all those adoption videos when she was trying to pick a family. Kind of hard to hide your pregnancy from your roommate. I didn't want to assume it was common knowledge. Well, it wasn't, but it wasn't really a secret either. Julia rubs her eyes. She got pregnant midway through her senior year at PSSU. It wasn't like she announced she was knocked up on Facebook or anything. She carried small, wore baggy clothes, and was off for the summer, so nobody really knew what was going on. Not that she would have denied it if anyone asked. It's just people tend to get excited over pregnant women, and it was weird for her to tell people that she was giving the baby up. Understandable. How did you know about the Bowens? Julia is staring at him. Her parents never talk about Henry. It's a sore subject, so it's hard to imagine them bringing it up. Kaiser is silent for a moment. If Claire and Julia were so close, then the young woman might remember additional information that could be helpful, and he needs her to stay focused and talking. Her anxiety is already so high, though, that the news of Henry's death might send her over the edge. He's not sure he wants to tell her this part. They didn't, he finally says. We know about the Bowens because we found Henry when we found Claire. I don't understand, she says, and it's clear she doesn't. She never saw Henry. It was an open adoption, but she only kept up with him via emails the Bowens sent. They didn't have a relationship. They agreed to let him decide on that when he got older. Is he okay? I'm afraid not. He allows this information to sink in. Julia stares at him as if waiting for the punchline. When it doesn't come, she sits back in her chair, her fingers at her mouth again. She chews furiously. There isn't much fingernail there. She'll hit skin if she doesn't stop. Can I show you a picture? Kaiser asks. He pulls out his phone. Of Claire? Julia stops chewing, her face a mask of horror. No, of the guy she might have been talking to at the Green Bean the last time you saw her. She relaxes a little, nods, and he taps on his phone, bringing up a picture of Calvin James. It's the most recent one he can find from five years ago, and it's Calvin's mugshot from the day Kaiser arrested him. The name board is cropped out. He hands her the phone, wondering if she pays attention to the news, wondering if she'll recognize him as the Sweet Bay Strangler. Julia's brow furrows as she zooms in on the picture. She stares at it, then looks up at Kaiser, confused. I don't understand. He's not the man from the coffee shop? Of course he isn't, Julia says. She's still looking at him funny. That's Calvin. So she does recognize him. But her use of only his first name strikes Kaiser as odd. So you know who he is then, he says. Of course I do, the young woman says, and the line between her eyebrows deepens. But he's not the guy Claire was with the other night. That would be ridiculous. I wouldn't have let her hook up with him again. Again? Remember I told you she disappeared for a few days once before? He was the guy she was with. They had a hot and heavy fling, pretty much all sex, no talking. She never even got his last name. But I guess he must have rocked her world because when she finally came home, she was like the human equivalent of that heart-eyed emoji face on your iPhone. Julia shakes her head. She really liked him. He was older, 
nothing like the guys she usually hooks up with, and she thought maybe it would turn into something real. But when she texted him the next day, he never responded. Douchebag. And when she found out she was pregnant six weeks later, she tried calling him, figured he deserved to know. But by then, his number was disconnected. Wait, Kaiser says, holding up a hand, not sure if he heard her correctly. What? Are we not on the same page here? Julia is looking at him like he's an idiot. Detective, the picture you just showed me is of Henry's biological father. Kaiser opens his mouth to speak, but he's so caught off guard, no words come out. That asshole is long gone, Julia says flatly, making a face. And good riddance. Hey, was he arrested? Was that a mugshot you showed me? Still processing it all, Kaiser says, his voice faint. Yes, it was. I guess you don't watch the news. That's okay, I don't either. It's all terrible anyway. So, what was he arrested for? He looks at her. She wants to know. He might as well tell her. Like she said earlier, she'll just Google the shit out of it anyway. Murder. Calvin James is the Sweet Bay Strangler. Wait, what? Exactly, Kaiser says, watching as Julia's fingers fly back into her mouth. A spot of blood appears on one of them as she gnaws. Exactly. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold. 